0: Adult Sabbath School, Lesson 2, Moses History Lesson, 2nd of October to 8th of October. Hi, my name is Jonathan Peterson. I'm the Sabbath School Superintendent at Coffs Harbour Church, and I'm happy to be sharing this week's lesson with you. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. We thank you for the great man Moses, and we pray that you help us to get a deeper understanding of this book, of your will for our lives, and of how we can respond in a way That's going to be of benefit to us and of glory to you, to the book of Deuteronomy and especially to this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm really keen to study the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's an amazing book and I'm keen to learn more and more about it, get a a, a more in-depth understanding. Let's start with Sabbath lesson, Moses' history lesson. Now, most of us would probably think that the book of Deuteronomy is about Moses or about the Israelites, But the author of the lesson points out that actually the book of Deuteronomy is primarily about Jesus. And I'm interested to see, as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, how the lessons reveal that Deuteronomy is about Jesus. But from the very start, we can see that this is not just another account of history. If it was just history, it would be the same as every other story in history, A story of man striving and uh, struggles and battles with man at the center and man being the primary actor. What makes Deuteronomy different to the history of other nations is that primarily it's a story of God working for his people. The recorded history of other nations doesn't mention God, but what about Deuteronomy? Let's just have a look at the first chapter. Verse six, the Lord said to us, verse 19, Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, verse 21, the Lord your God has given you this land, verse 30, the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you, verse 34, when the Lord your God heard what you said, he was angry, verse 45, you came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. Now, there's some references just from chapter one about gods in the history of the Israelites. God's actions, how God is being proactive, how God is actually the dominant player, the dominant actor in this story, not Moses and not the Israelites. Now, the book of Deuteronomy starts with a history lesson. Why? What's the importance of that? The primary importance of this history lesson, and possibly most history lessons, is that the current generation does not make the same mistakes as previous generations. There are two ways to learn. One is to learn from others, and one is to learn from your own experience. For example, uh, young people are told by their parents, by their teachers, don't take drugs. And maybe some of them have even, some of the parents or the the teachers have even had experience, and based on that negative experience they've had with drugs, they say, don't take drugs, because I've already tried it, and it's disastrous. It'll lead you down a bad path. So the young person might say to themselves, I'm gonna learn from that, I'm gonna learn from that other person's experience and that other person's advice, and I'm going to choose to not take drugs. But strangely enough, in spite of repeated warnings, many young people, and I suppose older people, but many young people choose to take drugs in spite of the advice given by people who have already experienced or observed the disastrous consequences of taking drugs. They learn the hard way that drugs are a destructive force in your life. And this is the hard way to learn. This is the dumb way to learn. And you have to suffer as you learn through it. It would be much easier to learn from other people's mistakes, other people's experiences, and other people's advice. God wants his this new generation to learn the easy way. By paying attention, the mistakes of their parents and grandparents. I was thinking everyone should learn from their parents mistakes and because of that every generation should actually be better than the previous generation. What we do find as we study history though is that there is continual progress in the area of knowledge, technology and science but there's not a great deal of progress in morality and wisdom And in spirituality. We learn from Ellen White this idea of learning from the past. She has this famous quote, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. So really uh, there's no excuse for us when we have access to this history for us to be a better generation than the previous generation to take what what they've taught us and what they've experienced, to learn from those mistakes and to not make the same mistakes. If we do make the same mistakes, we're foolish. If history is not taught to the next generation, I'm talking contemporary now, contemporary times, if we don't teach history to the next generation, then the mistakes of the past are forgotten and we are doomed to repeat those mistakes. This is what the Bible reveals to us. This is what Ellen White shares with us. We must teach our history to our young people. What history should we be teaching? Firstly, you always start with your personal testimony. Your children and your grandchildren should know how you came into the faith, your history of faith, your history with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Why did you become a Seventh-day Adventist? And why did you stay a Seventh-day Adventist? And how has God worked in your life as a believer? How has your faith been manifested? How has God's faithfulness been manifested in your life? Then you every one of us has a family faith history. What about other people in the family? How many generations has it been in the family? How has the faith been passed from one generation to the next? It may not for some people. Then you've all got uh, all of us have got our local church history. When did your local church start? Was it in the 50s? Was it in the 60s? Who started it? Why did it start? What was the vision of the believers there? Expanding beyond that, we've got the Adventist Church in Australia. We can teach our children the history of how the Adventist message came to Australia back in the 1800s. Then we have the Adventist Church in general. What is the history of our church? Why do we exist? What forces of history, what forces of God shaped our church, guided our church? Why do we exist as a separate movement to other churches? We need to teach this to our children. Then we can go further back, before our church began, to have a look at the history of the Protestant Reformation. Why was there a Reformation? What was wrong with the church that it needed reforming? Then we can go back further and look up, look at the history of the church, from the early church right through to the Protestant Reformation. We can have a look at the Dark Ages and the impact of the... Um, the corruption of the scriptures or the corrupt interpretation of the scriptures then we can have a look of course at bible history we need to know the history of new testament stories and then we have the whole old testament stories right back to creation so there's a whole lot of history there that we need to be teaching the younger generation because if we don't teach them we have something to fear but if we do We have nothing to fear for the future. Now, there's one reason. This is actually one reason why the Bible is primarily historical, because stories are actually a better way to learn than instruction. You can tell people over and over what to do, but if it's shaped in a story, somehow that connects better with us. This is the way God has designed us as humans, that we relate to and connect better with stories. This is why we find when Jesus was here, he created stories in which to convey his message. Let's go to Sunday. Sunday's lesson is called The Ministry of Moses. Was Moses always a man of God? You remember that he was raised as a prince of Egypt, and then after murdering a man, he escaped Egypt and went to live a quiet life in Midian. And I think he quite enjoyed it there, away from the pomp of the palace certainly away from slavery and he became a shepherd and enjoyed a nice peaceful life there we're not sure of his connection with god there but it may not have been a very vibrant connection not sure at all what we do know is when god called moses moses was reluctant to do god's will moses did not want to leave his comfortable peaceful life in midian go back to egypt and confront the most powerful man in the world. Now, he gave many excuses for it, but rightly because from the time that God called Moses, Moses had nothing but trouble and stress in his life. And we can actually see the same with many of the prophets. I'm sure Jeremiah would have been tempted to choose a quiet, peaceful life rather than suffer the persecution and harassment that he suffered. Many of God's prophets... Face trouble and stress from the moment they're called to serve God. Ellen White had the same experience as well. She had a great deal of trouble and stress during her life as a result of her being called to be God's messenger. Now what Moses even though Moses suffered trouble and stress, what he gained was far greater. He learnt humility, he learnt submission to God, he learned self-sacrifice. What happened was God transformed his character to become like God's character. And that ultimately is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what God wants to do for us. He wants to restore his image. We were created in the image of God and he wants to restore that broken image, restore that image in us. Let's have a look at Exodus 32, 29 to 32. It says, Then Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to... To the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, and now I'm going to take and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if you will. Forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. It seems to be a reference to the book of life. And Moses' intercession here on behalf of of his people foreshadows the intercession of Jesus Christ and ultimately the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, willing himself to take the penalty for us so that we could live. Moses wanted to see Israel prosper, and he was willing to be blotted out of God's book for Israel to be saved. Monday's lesson is called Fulfilled Prophecy, and this is quite a simple concept. God said that his people would wander in the desert for 40 years, and after 40 years, he would bring them into the promised land. And true to his word, after 40 years, he brought them back to the border of the promised land after all the rebels had died in the wilderness. He brought them back right on time. He kept his promise. God always does this. For example, when his people, when he exiled his own people into Babylon, he said, you will be there for 70 years. And right on time, they returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Then we have the prophecy of Jesus' first coming, which was, we can find in Daniel chapter nine. Right on time, Jesus came. And of course, there are many other events our Bible prophecy, all happened right on time. They can all be quite easily traced through history. What this tells us is that all of God's time prophecies have happened and will happen right on time. Now, there's one prophecy that doesn't have a time attached to it, and that is the second coming. But what we know is this. God has a time when Christ will come back, and Christ will be right on time according to God's schedule, even though we don't know when. He's given us science to, to know when it's near or when it's close, but we don't know the exact time, but we do know it will be right on time. We can trust the prophecies of God in the Scriptures. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson, a thousand times more numerous. Let's read Deuteronomy 1, 9 to 11. I spoke to you at that time, saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you. God is taking responsibility for the multiplication of his people. And behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Now, the reason why God can take responsibility from this, not only because he gave humans the ability to procreate, but these people were in the wilderness. They should have perished. Who knows how many there were? Well, well over a million. Over a million. And yet, not only did they just survive, they actually Multiplied through God's provision and God's blessing. Verse 11, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. One thing the Bible makes clear is this God loves multiplication. You just think of a fruit tree, let's take an apple tree. How many apple trees can come from one apple tree? On an apple tree in any given year, there could be hundreds of apples. Within each apple, there are many seeds. Every one of those seeds can produce another apple tree, which can produce thousands upon thousands of apples over over its lifetime, which then again produce thousands upon thousands of seeds to produce more and more trees. God is a God of multiplication, and multiplication is a blessing of God. Then we think of the animal world, think of things like ants and mice and fish and how they multiply so abundantly. Why is multiplication such a positive thing? Multiplication is the ultimate expression of creation, provision, and love. When God asked humans to multiply, to have children and multiply, we really have a bond with our children which is so special because when a a child is born, the parent immediately loves that child more than themselves. So God's method of creation is a way of bringing out the best in us, of bringing out love in us, such that a parent would give their life for their child. So not only is it an expression of creation, but it's also an expression of love. God is a creator. God just loves creating things. And he has given us the privilege to participate in this by allowing us to procreate, to have children. God actually commands humans from the very beginning to be fruitful and to mul- to multiply. Whatever God does, you can just you can expect that Satan will do the opposite. And that's what we find in modern secular atheistic philosophy. This is anti-multiplication, this philosophy. For example, abortion. Instead of encouraging the birth of children, they kill the babies in the womb. Many today in Western societies, as in Western secular societies, many people are actually not getting married and choosing, they're choosing not to have children because they want to live for self. As many in my family who, they're my age or more, and they've just chosen not to have children. They just don't want kids. And yet God says, be fruitful and multiply. And now there's a movement which is encouraging young people that by not having children, they're going to save the planet. And so a lot of young people have taken this on board and their virtue signaling by saying, we're not having children because we value them. This is, as I said, we can tell this is the philosophy of Satan. If Satan is anti-multiplication, God is pro-multiplication. What we do find is as societies become more affluent and more secular, fertility rates decline. This happens all over the world, all over the world. Without fail, a secular affluent society will have lower and lower fertility rates such that they can't actually maintain a stable population. They decline in population were it not, in many cases, for migration. This shows a lack of appreciation for God and his blessing of multiplication. Let's go to Wednesday's lesson. This tells the story of the negative response to the report of the spies. As we know, the spies went into the, to the land to spy it out. They came back with a negative report and everyone catastrophized it and demonstrated that they didn't actually have faith that God could lead them into the promised land, that God had the power to do it. Now, when you think of everything that God had already done, the 10 plagues, what a miracle, multiple miracles. Parting the sea for them. This has never happened before. They saw it with their own eyes and they walked through on dry land. And then you have God leading them by the pillar of fire and the cloud. And then you have God providing them with manna. And then you have God appearing on the mountain with thunder and lightning and earthquakes. And then you have God giving his law to them. God showed, God revealed himself in such a powerful and mighty way that he had never revealed himself before. And in spite of that, the people did not have faith. After all that God had done, they didn't believe that God could defeat the enemies. Let's have a look at Deuteronomy 1, 26-28. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us. Now just pause there. Can you imagine this? After all that God had done for them, they said, God hates us. He just rescued them from slavery with a miraculous mighty hand. He just provided for them in the wilderness. He, what, what could God have done? Had, what more could God have done for them? And yet they said, God hates us. No wonder God was uh, offended by this. Let's keep going. Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. He brought us out of slavery because he hates us. This doesn't even make sense. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. So they were convinced that God had revealed his mighty power, done all these miraculous and miraculous wonders in their sight, saved them in order to destroy them. Absolute silliness, absolute nonsense. Anyway, as a consequence of that, we know that God said, every one of you above the age of 20 will not going to the promised land, you will die in the desert. That is the consequence of your unbelief. This reminds us that there are consequences for our sins. We can be forgiven, but there are still consequences. When we rebel against God, when we break his commandments, when we choose to turn away from God and refuse to listen to his voice and lack faith in him, there will be negative consequences for us. We can always repent and turn back. But God cannot always spare us from the consequences. Now Moses interceded for the people, but he interceded because he considered the honor of God. He didn't want God's name to be brought down, to be defamed, to be devalued amongst the other nations. He said, God, what do the other nations think if your people perish? They're going to say he brought them out of Egypt to destroy them. What a terrible God that is. Moses' first thought, was God's glory, was God's honour, was God's reputation amongst the nations. And so today, God is to be glorified in his people. And I want to just pose this question to us for us to consider. Is God glorified in our lives by our behaviour, by our words and by our actions? When others see us, when others interact with us, does it bring glory to God? Let's go to Thursday's lesson, The Iniquity of the Amorites. This is a tricky one. This is a challenging one, but I hopefully will make it a little bit clearer for you and a little bit more palatable. So this lesson is all about the destruction of the tribes inhabiting the area of the Promised Land and around the Promised Land. And it clearly states that the Israelites were to slay the men, women, and the children, leave no one alive. And we find this hard to accept. However, what's interesting is that wasn't this the exact same thing as happened during the flood? Who were killed? Men, women, and children. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? When God rained down fire and brimstone on that city, who were killed? Men, women, and children. And at the second coming, who will be killed? Men, women, and children. So why is it that we are so much more offended by the Israelites killing the men, women and the children than we are when God does it. Because God has done the same thing and will do the same thing. He did the same thing at the flood, the and he will do the same thing at the second coming. We are offended when God asks the Israelites to act on his behalf to execute judgment. We don't feel so bad if God does it. No one really raises this objection about the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. We think, yeah, God on you, God, you killed all those wicked people. What? In a sense, it is the same. What is happening is God's righteous judgment, God's moral judgment against extreme wickedness. God, you've got to remember, God also told the Israelites to not actually harm certain tribes. You don't touch them, don't touch them, they're fine. Just leave them for now. They don't need to be judged at the moment. But certain tribes had become so wicked that they needed to be, they needed to be eliminated like cutting out a cancer. When sin, when a society becomes so sinful and so depraved, it can spread like cancer and completely cover the earth in spiritual darkness. Now, in this instance with these tribes, instead of doing it himself as he did with the flood, as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, he commanded the Israelites to execute justice on his behalf. Now, we do know that God had allowed these people time to repent, time to turn from their wicked ways. And he actually, the Israelites had to suffer for that because he basically kept them in Egypt to allow these uh, tribes in the Promised Land more time to repent. But they didn't repent. And even after they heard of the stories of God, these stories about God's wonders that he did, they spread all throughout this territory. They still didn't repent. However, God did make exceptions for those who showed faith. Remember Rahab? God allowed her to live because she demonstrated faith. And I'm sure God would have done the same for other people if they demonstrated. they demonstrated faith in him and a love for him. I think one of the problems is, we don't understand the extent of their wickedness. In our society today, we live a fairly privileged life and um, the institutions, the controls, the law enforcement that we have today does a good job of protecting us from a lot of evil in society. Back in those times, there was no police force and societies could become very wicked, very violent, very ruthless, barbaric. Barbaric beyond our comprehension, where they would skin people alive, where they would torture people for fun, sacrifice their children to their gods. All kinds of evil that we would consider unfathomable. I believe that these societies that God told the Israelites to eliminate were the same in character as the society in the days of the flood. And what does it tell us about that society? All of their thoughts were evil continually. Not one good thought entered their minds. They were constantly thinking of evil, wicked things. There was no chance of redemption or repentance for these people in this society. Sin had spread like a cancer until they were utterly depraved. If they were not cut out, this sin would have spread and destroyed any chance of God's light reaching the world. As hard as it is to accept, sometimes the elimination of the wicked is an act of mercy to the righteous. None of us have a great deal of trouble accepting the killing that happened by, by the Allied forces in World War I and World War II to, to preserve freedom for our country and for Europe and for the whole world, really. We don't really have a problem with that. And so I think we need to look at it in the same light. Sometimes extreme action and extreme measures need to be taken in order to combat great evil. We must remember, we are actually in a battle. The Bible says we are in a spiritual battle. Satan is not relaxing. He's not sitting back thinking things are going okay. Satan is active And he wants to execute his diabolical plan throughout the world. This involves deceiving the whole world and persecuting those who will not comply and who will not submit to what he wants. That is us. We are a target. We are Satan's target. He's after us. And so it's good we're on God's side. And sometimes God will take extreme measures to intervene on our behalf. Sometimes God does need to take drastic action to stop the spread of wickedness. It may be unpalatable, but sometimes it's necessary for God's purposes to be fulfilled in the earth. And finally on Friday, further, what I got from this was God was actually willing to punish his own people as well. There were a, a number of times in the wilderness where people rebelled against God and the punishment was death. So God isn't against a certain people and for a certain people. He showed that he was willing to punish his own people to execute judgment by the, using the death penalty on his own people who were rebellious. Some say, oh, this is genocide. It's not genocide at all. Genocide is the killing of a race because of their race. But the judgment that God executed here was not against a certain race, but against wickedness. And it just so happened that this wickedness had spread amongst a a group of people, a society, a community, a tribe. It's been great sharing this lesson with you. And I'm really looking forward to continuing the study of the book of Deuteronomy. And I think there's been already some amazing lessons that we've learned. We've talked about the ministry of Moses, the importance of history, fulfilled prophecy, the importance of God's value on multiplication, the consequences of rebellion, And God executing his judgment upon the wicked. And so we are going to see uh, more about the character of God. We are going to see more. We are going to learn more about how this book does portray Jesus and the qualities of God. And hopefully you've enjoyed this lesson. You learned something from it. And I appreciate you taking the time to to listen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for the, the ideas that have come from this. And for what we've been able to learn, help us to apply these things in our lives, not just to hear them, but to actually implement them so that we can get the benefit of these lessons. We can can learn the easy way from the experiences of others so that we do not make the same mistakes. Help us as a movement, as a church also, to move forward, to learn from the mistakes not only of uh, the Israelites, but the mistakes of those who've come before us in our church, in our family perhaps. Help us to move forward with you in faith, to hold on steadfastly to our faith in you and to trust you always, believing that your power can get us into the promised land. In Jesus' name, amen.